You're listening to the Life Church Livonia podcast, a show where you can hear the teachings from our weekend gatherings. You can catch the full service on our Facebook or YouTube and head over to our website if you'd like to give. Here we're real people following a real God and experiencing real life. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. Hey, Life Church! Welcome, welcome! It's me again. I know, super surprising. Guess what? I'm back preaching this week. And uh, we're continuing our Simply Christmas series this week. Uh, Christmas in America especially gets so hectic, so chaotic, so frantic, so busy, so full of get, 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 and not enough give. And uh, we're living in a time right now in our country filled with constant distractions, filled with powerful divisions, filled with complex issues, filled with great injustice, and in a world that is ultra-violent and brutal. However, we are looking to the Christmas story as a contrast to all of that. Because in the Christmas story, there is hope, there is redemption, and there is light in the darkness. And so in this series, we're not looking for new information out of the Christmas story. We're looking to re-anchor ourselves in the truths that it communicates. Last week, Pastor Kate did a great job taking us through the genealogy of Jesus and helping us see that God came for all people. And this week, I want to talk a little bit about the birth of Jesus. However, before I do, I want to ask you this question. Did you ever get a gift that didn't feel like it was a gift at the time? You know, I felt that way about getting my first guitar, actually. Uh, I'd watched my parents play guitar. I'd watched them lead worship. I barely like Bible camp and at Bible studies and be on stage. And, and I just thought it was amazing. You know, I was like, this is the coolest thing ever, watching your mom and dad be good at something. And I loved watching them play guitar and lead worship. So when I was in third grade, I asked for a guitar for my birthday and I got it. And I remember opening the case and put, closing it real quick and running up to my room and then reopening it again. Like, you know, like a treasure chest or something where the light shines off the gold, like, oh, and I gently, gingerly pulled it out. And it was, it was like I was looking at destiny, the moment I would become a musician. And with great purpose, I gave my first strum. And it sounded terrible. It sounded so bad. And I was mortified. I was like, oh no, uh, uh, I must have done something wrong. Let me try again. Oh, and it was so bad again. I was in shock because what I thought was, I would just imagine how I wanted it to sound and it would just sound that way. And so when that didn't happen, I felt like something was wrong with me. And so what I did is I hid the guitar in my room. I hid it for years and years and years. And it was about three or four years later that I finally picked it up again. But it was a gift that didn't feel like a gift anymore. And it wasn't until I was in sixth grade that I gathered up the courage to finally ask for help and to be prepared for it and to be prepared to be bad at something and to overcome my shame of embarrassment of not just getting it right away. And so I asked my dad to teach me some chords and he did exactly that. And then I committed to leading worship every single week for our middle school youth group at Life Church Canton. And now I've been playing guitar for 20 years. And even though it didn't feel like a gift at first, playing guitar has been one of the biggest gifts of my life. I've met some of my closest friends, had some of my favorite experiences, learned how to feel and process my emotions, all through this gift of music. And that all came from playing guitar. 
but it didn't feel like a gift at first. And there are many gifts that do not feel like gifts at first. And I think some of those God wants to give us this Christmas. You see, God wants to give us some things that aren't going to feel like a gift at first. Many lessons he wants to teach us, to receive, to embody. Honestly, we would just rather somebody else learn and not have to learn at all. And as I look at the Christmas story, I think one of the gifts that Jesus may want to give us this Christmas is the gift of embracing vulnerability and weakness. Now, all of us experience times in life where we're reminded of our smallness, of our weakness, of our powerlessness, of our vulnerability. When there's a death in the family, we're reminded that one day we too shall pass. And we wrestle with guilt about the things we didn't say or didn't say enough. And we wrestle with the powerlessness of aging and that we just can't stop it. And we wish that it hadn't happened, but it has. When there's a miscarriage, we're reminded how little power we have over our bodies to make them work in the way that we wish they would. And we wrestle with the grief and the weakness of that. When there's a crisis with our kids, we come face to face with our lack of control and how we really can't make them make the right choices or protect them from all the harms in the world. When we deal with broken or absent families, we're again just faced with our powerlessness to change people and to heal wounds, sometimes that are generations deep. When we face our own health problems, again, we're just faced with the reality of our own vulnerability and weakness that we are aging and all one day will die and that we are vulnerable to death and vulnerable to pain and powerless to avoid it. When we're reminded of old failures, it just brings up all those things in us again, the shame, the guilt, the humiliation, the weakness, the vulnerability. These struggles are constant reminders of our weaknesses and vulnerabilities. They remind us we're not in control of life and that sometimes, despite our best efforts and most fervent prayers, despite our well-executed next steps, sometimes things just fall apart. However, through these kinds of circumstances, I think God wants to give us a gift. Now, I don't believe God causes all these circumstances. We live in a world that is fundamentally broken by sin, that is fundamentally different than his design. And some of those things just come from the brokenness of the world order as it is. But I do believe that God wants to redeem these dark places by using them to give us gifts in disguise. Gifts that don't seem like gifts at first, but later, are really valuable and beautiful gifts. So the question I want us to ask today is, am I willing to let God give me a gift I'd rather not receive this Christmas? And today I want to look at the Christmas story. And I want to look at the locations and the places of the Christmas story. And I want to look at how they show us something about the true nature of Christmas, the nature of Jesus, and how they invite us into embracing the gifts of vulnerability and weakness. So we're gonna start in John 1, uh, because I think this is where the Christmas story really begins. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not 
recognize him. Now, this may seem like a funny place to start, but the Christmas story is about Jesus being born. But before Jesus was born, he was in heaven. Right? That's our first location. That's our first place in the Christmas story. He was in heaven. And heaven is this place of great power, of control, of safety, of security. In heaven, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Son of God. He is the right hand of the Father. And in heaven, there's no sin, there's no brokenness, there's no ailments. It's pure, it's good, it's overflowing with the love of God and the perfect community of the Trinity. All things good, all things right, all things as they should be. And this is the place that we keep trying to make on earth. Behind our desire to fix negative effects of things like climate change, behind our desire uh, to fix racism and racial sins, behind our desire to fix economic disparities and poverty, behind our desire to fix broken people and broken systems that we create together. It's this desire for heaven. It's as if we know we were made for a better world, a place where all things are right, where all things are good. And that's the place where the story begins with Christmas. That's the place where Jesus begins. Yet the story of Christmas is the story of Jesus leaving all those things. And it's the story of Jesus trading his power, his safety, his security, his honor, his glory for weakness, for powerlessness, for humility, and for vulnerability. And we see this so clearly in the second location of our Christmas story, which is in Luke 2. It says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee and to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So the second location that we see in the Christmas story is the location of the manger. Now, the manger is a feeding trough for animals. So in great contrast to heaven, this location is incredibly unsanitary. Right? Scripture doesn't say exactly where Mary delivered Jesus or where they exactly stayed the night. It could have been a stable, like we see in the nativity scenes. It could be a cave, which is what the early church believed. It could be a barn, which is the current popular consensus. It could have been someone's house and then they stayed the night in a place with a manger. The details are lacking. But we do know that Jesus stayed his first night in a manger. And the environment that the manger is in likely is where mangers would be, meaning where animals are. So this is a place where animals live. And that means it's filled with animal feces, it's filled with animal saliva, it's filled with animal discharges, and the rest of it. Even if they're not immediately surrounding Jesus and his family, he's still in the manger, which is filled with anything that can come out of an animal's mouth. <laughs> so Jesus is being nursed in that environment. Probably every two to three hours because he's a newborn. Jesus is pooping and peeing and needing to be changed in that environment. He's sleeping in that environment. He's being held in that environment. 
Newborns are very vulnerable to sickness and disease. They're newborns. And it's common courtesy and best practice to wash your hands before even holding one. So of all places for a newborn to enter the world, this is the last place you'd want them to be if you were trying to keep them safe and healthy. So Jesus has traded the purity of heaven for the dirt of the manger, traded the total security and safety from the sin and brokenness of the world for total vulnerability. And the question is, how can Jesus do that? How can he move from this place of of total peace and security and power to a place of such weakness and danger? And the answer is, it's because he trusts the Father to take care of him. Which moves us to our third location in the Christmas story. And our third location is Egypt. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I will call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. So imagine this with me. You're Mary and Joseph, and you have a toddler that's two years old. And the government issues a politically sanctioned culling against your baby boy and every other boy his age in the whole metro area where he was born. Just imagine that. Bethlehem is only about five miles from Jerusalem, a little bit more depending on if the crow flies, blah, 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 but about five miles. And Jerusalem was the capital of Judea, the country that they were in. That means that in Metro Jerusalem, there would have been an age gap among men for two to three years. Contextualizing it for us, it would be like if in the whole Metro Detroit area, there were no first, second, or third grade boys. All those classes were only girls because all the boys had been murdered in an assassination initiated by the government. That's crazy. That's absolutely insane. There would have been a gap in age in a generation. And for Jesus to even be his age would have been strange, depending on where he was living. Some of the cities he visited, when he goes to Jerusalem, I bet they thought, man, I haven't seen a guy who was 30 in a while. You know? I mean, the Bible doesn't say that. I'm inserting that based on the the evidence here. But it's just as amazing to kind of put some skin on that idea. So Mary and Joseph find themselves as political refugees fleeing with their toddler to a nation that has historically enslaved their people because they're being hunted by their own government. This is Egypt, right? Egypt is a place of death. It's a place where they are now refugees. It's a place where they were historically abused as a people. It's a place they're running to because they're being hunted actively by a violent and insane king. And it's a place where there is a deep history of racism and slavery. And this is the place they go to to look for safety. 
So Jesus has left the comfort, power, safety, security, and glory to become hunted, to become in constant danger, and to become vulnerable to the whims of Herod. He traded stability and peace for the instability and violence of being an immigrant refugee hunted by his own government. However, despite running from Herod, we don't see Jesus running from his humanity. He doesn't power up to protect himself or put Herod in his place. He remains a human child, dependent on his parents and their level of wisdom and obedience. And he's able to remain in this place of vulnerability and weakness as a two-year-old unable to protect himself, provide for himself, even fully think for himself. And he's able to remain there because he trusts the Father to take care of him. And this leads us to our fourth place, our fourth location, that's actually in the midst of all the other places in the Christmas story. And that's with Mary and Joseph. You see, Mary and Joseph are two weak, human, scared people. They're first-time parents, and they are also powerless against the disease of the manger, the violence of Herod, the potential racism of Egypt, and the instability of the first century AD. Jesus is the creator of all things. He saw and formed Mary and Joseph in their mother's wombs. And now the hands that he formed are the hands he's trusting to protect and take care of him. Jesus trusted that Mary's milk would come in on time and that she would lactate enough to feed him properly. Jesus trusted in Joseph's skill as a carpenter to provide for their family and give them enough to eat. Jesus trusted in Mary's level of maturity as a teenager to care more for him than herself. Jesus trusted in Joseph's steadfastness to endure the social ostracization of having a pregnant fiance he was not yet married to. Jesus trusted in Mary and Joseph's emotional stability as he woke them up for the third time in the middle of the night as they were fleeing their home. How could the Son of God enter into such dangerous, dirty, politically unstable, politically corrupt, and brutally violent, vulnerable state to be cared for by two people who are entirely unqualified, as all first-time parents are, and maybe second and third as well. I think he's able to do it because he has total trust in the Father to take care of him. Jesus knows that no matter the seeming security or insecurity, no matter the safety or danger, no matter the peace or violence, that the Father is with him, watching him, and taking care of him. And this total trust in the Father allows Jesus to enter into total vulnerability and weakness. The vulnerability and weakness of becoming a human baby and the vulnerability and weakness of the cross. Isn't it interesting that the two biggest Christian celebrations of the year, Christmas and Easter, are Jesus's greatest moments of weakness, vulnerability, and humility. In the incarnation and the crucifixion, Jesus steps into profound powerlessness, submitting himself to human beings completely being completely vulnerable. Because despite what the circumstances may seem, Jesus knows the Father is with him. Jesus knows the Father is watching him. And Jesus knows the Father is accomplishing his will. 
So when Jesus says in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. These are not just lessons he taught. These are characteristics he embodies even in the manger. The incarnation was not just an event, but is a posture. Who is more poor in spirit, meaning totally dependent on God, than a baby? Who is only needs nothing to give? Who is more meek and lowly and humble than a baby? Who has nothing to say and nothing to prove and just needs to be held? And we see the same lowliness, the same humility, and the same total faith in the Father that Jesus is able to, uh, that he has faith in and believes in to do the incarnation, we see the exact same faith on the cross. The faith to get up on the cross and trust the Father to do his work, that faith did not start at the cross. That faith started in the incarnation, in the manger. The cross is the place of Jesus' greatest weakness, greatest vulnerability, and greatest humiliation, and greatest need. And yet he does not come off the cross to show his power, avoid his pain, or show his glory. Jesus fully accepts vulnerability and weakness because he trusts the Father to take care of him. Jesus trusted the Father to protect him from disease in the manger. Jesus trusted the Father to protect him from Herod and his literal actual insanity and politically sanctioned violence. Jesus trusted the Father to protect him from any remaining racial tension between Israel and Egypt as he fled as a refugee in the early years of his life. Jesus trusted the Father to protect him from the ignorance, weakness, and selfishness of Mary and Joseph as they are new parents in a new land just trying to figure it out. Jesus trusted in the Father to protect him from the prejudice of a community that, because he wasn't Joseph's biological son. Everything that we celebrate Jesus for happened in his moments of greatest weakness and vulnerability because that's where God was accomplishing his greatest works. And if that's true for Jesus, then maybe, just maybe, it's true for us. Maybe our places of greatest vulnerability and weakness are not the curses we think they are, but maybe they're gifts in disguise where God wants to accomplish his greatest works in us. The Incarnation is not just an event, it's an invitation. All of us do have, have had, or will have points and moments in our lives where we are vulnerable and weak beyond comprehension and we are caught in the instability and churn of life. But despite that, I believe the Incarnation is an invitation to sleep like a baby in the midst of the chaos because God the Father has got us. This is a gift that Jesus embodies at Christmas. And it's a gift most of us don't want for Christmas. And it's a gift I didn't want. 2018 to 2020 uh, were just two of the hardest years of my life. They were uh, so brutal. In 2018, Life Church. Livonia had an opportunity for a building to be given to us. The church approached us and said, hey, we want to give you our building. Um, and there's some things, to, you know, we have to go through with that. There's another church that we are interested in giving it to, but you're our number one choice. We said, wow, this is amazing. Praise God. And so we went through a bunch of work, had a million conversations. And through many circumstances, despite my best efforts as the associate pastor and worship leader, 
our, our ministry began to suffer a little bit because of all the time we were pouring into the building into the, the necessary things to acquire it. And so ministry suffered, tensions built, conflicts gathered. And then at the last minute, when it came time for the church to vote on, on the building, people who were on the church's membership books but hadn't attended in years and years came and voted against us. And we didn't get the building. And when we told the church, it was like a dam broke. The issues people had been tolerating, the unresolved conflicts, the lacks in ministry, suddenly they had no reward. And over the next two years, our church dropped from 300 people to 30. And as we were declining, there were a couple key conversations. I just thought, if I, just, if I can have these conversations with these people and I can do it well, maybe we can salvage this and reverse the flow of all these losses. And so I prayed and I thought, and I mustered up my courage, and I planned, and I had some really, really hard conversations. And nothing changed. And I felt totally powerless that despite my best efforts, the church that I planted was failing. In that same time frame, a couple very close to me got pregnant. And it pushed a lot of their marital issues to the forefront. Things got so bad they were separated for a while. And seriously talking about divorce all the while while this woman is pregnant with their first kid. Being married to Amber, whose parents got divorced when she was a baby, uh, I felt um, desperate to intervene. Because I knew the pain that this divorce would cause this kid over their whole life. And I wanted to do everything in my power to try to save them from that. So I prayed and I planned and I mustered up my courage and I had some really hard conversations. I made the phone calls I needed to make. I shared my heart and nothing changed. Their marriage didn't improve. There was no turning point. And I felt totally powerless and weak as I watched this couple I love crumble before my eyes. Around that same time, there was an accident with my friend named Dave. Dave and I were co-best men at my friend Ben's wedding. Ben is one of my closest friends and Dave and Ben worked together at Bear Lake Bible Camp for a season. And one day while they were taking care of some bed bugs, there was a propane explosion and Dave was right in the middle of it. Uh, he got major third degree burns and was horribly disfigured. And we prayed and prayed and prayed. And after prayers and surgeries and visits and months of up and down, uh, Dave died in December. Despite all our prayers, despite all of our hopes, we were powerless to change anything. Around that same time, a friend of mine who's cognitively impaired to a, to a part of his brain that didn't develop in the womb uh, was accused and wrongly, wrongfully convicted of a crime that he didn't commit and almost sent to prison. And he was accused of this crime because of the cognitive impairment. Luckily, he wasn't sent to prison, but the sentence is still on his record and he was under probation for three years. Despite all of our prayers, solidarity, his lawyer's arguments, we couldn't change it. Not long after, my last living grandparent died. And nothing will remind you of weakness and vulnerability like a funeral. 
And then a few months after that, there was a family meeting and some dark, dark, dark secrets came to light in Amber's family and the family exploded. And everyone spread all across the country and just scattered. And uh, all these ideas that we had had about what our future would look like all of a sudden were gone. And we talked deeply with each family member, trying to get to the heart of things and bring some healing and heal ourselves. And we had a variety of very hard conversations. Uh, and the family still not reunified and still not healed. In this season, God showed me just how weak, just how powerless, and just how vulnerable I really was. There were days I was so sad, so heavy, so angry. I just thought I would die. Like I just was like, if I just woke up and then just died, I'd be like, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> and in this season, none of my efforts changed any of these circumstances. And despite my hardest efforts and most fervent prayers, everything around me was just dying and falling apart. And so I stopped trying to change those things. And instead I began to let Jesus change me instead. God showed me that even though I wasn't in control, he was. He showed me that my prayers were more important than any plans I could make, any solutions I could conjure up, any crucial conversations I could have. And as we found ourselves with 30 people at Life Church Livonia in July of 2020, I stopped trying to fix it. I stopped trying to save the church. And I just asked the Lord what he wanted to do. And he told us to keep going. And now here we are, two years later, with a church of nearly 200 people and $422,000 committed, 250 of which we actually have in hand, to get a permanent home in this community and continue to do ministry. God did that, not me. After my conversation uh, with that couple didn't work, I just began to pray for them. And I began to pray that God would just put a sign in their path to just stop them and avert this destruction. And when their baby was born, he did exactly that. And now they're happily married with two kids. And God did that, not me. Dave passed, and that was a grief. However, a sweet fruit from that was Ben had just started to play guitar when Dave died. And over two years, he wrote 14 songs to help process that grief. And we, uh, he came to me in the summer of 2021 and asked me if I'd help him record them. And I said I would, and we just released that album. And it was so sweet just to see the healing and processing grief together that took place as we did that process. And God did that healing, not me. My friend who was wrongfully convicted just finished his probation. And we've prayed, uh, and as we've prayed, his character has been transformed in this process in some profound ways. And there's a possibility that his record may be expunged of this wrongful conviction. And if that happens, it'll be God, not me. My last living grandparent did die. But my parents became grandparents. And the circle of life in our family continued and grew sweeter. And God did that, not me. And Amber's family is not fully healed. God has done some big moves in moving them forward towards some healing, but there's a lot of work to be done still. But I'm watching as things have gone beneath the surface in each of her family members, 
to move from just a band-aid fix to a deeply transformed life. And even just recently, once again, I was preparing over Christmas, like, okay, everyone's going to be together. Which of these hard conversations are we going to have? And Amber uh, just told me the other day that one of these, these hard conversations I was like, planning to have all resolved themselves as she prayed about it. It just was like amazing. And God did that, not me. And if the family fully heals, it'll be God that does that too, not me. We don't have to run from our own vulnerabilities and weaknesses because Jesus embraced his. We don't have to run from our financial vulnerabilities, our relational vulnerabilities, our physical vulnerabilities, or our emotional vulnerabilities. Instead, we can receive the gift that in our weakness, God is strong. And so I just want to ask, where are you weak and vulnerable right now? Emotionally, relationally, physically, financially? And what would it look like to trust the Father to take care of you in that place, to accomplish His will, not in your strength, but in your weakness this Christmas? This Christmas, we are reminded that Jesus came in total weakness and vulnerability, and it is through that lessening that He was highly exalted, given the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every name will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus purchased salvation for the whole world and was made the lamb upon the throne. Because God's kingdom is so upside down from ours. That Jesus was exalted through his lessening. Through weakness and vulnerability, Jesus saved the world. Through death on a cross, instead of through conquering the world. And as I've reflected on this, there's a song that has really stuck out to me that's been really powerful. I've been worshiping to a lot recently at home. Uh, it's a, not really a Christmas song, but it is in my house right now. And it's a new song. And I just invite you to hear it and to listen to it. And as you listen to it, to just begin to lift your own places of vulnerability and weakness where you've been striving to fix it, striving to make it better, or just being anxious that it's not whole. And just lift that up to God and let Him do what only He can do. So I want to share this song with you now. You must become just like a child. You must bow low before you rise, cause it's where I Oh, it's where I am. I praise you, Father, for you humble all the proud. You give to babies what the wise may never know. You give your power to
Jesus came in total weakness and vulnerability as God in the flesh, the maker of the world as a human child, so that he might live a perfect life and take your sins and my sins and put them to death on the cross so that we might be saved from the consequences of hell that come from being cut off from God and that we might be restored to his family where we belong as his children. This Christmas, that gift is available to you. And maybe you're here this morning and you're far from God. Maybe you're here and, and you just don't even feel like anything's really wrong with your life and you don't need this. Maybe you're here and you're just feeling God's hand press upon you. If you're here and, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I just want to ask you, why not? What's holding you back? If it's that you don't think you're really that bad, it's not about being good or bad. It's about if I've sinned, I've cut myself off from God. I'm a branch that has cut itself off from the tree and I will die. And I need someone to reattach me. And I invite you into that. Because scripture says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But when we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he lived a perfect life, and put our sins to death on a cross, and then rose from the grave that we might have a new kind of life, be born again as a new kind of person. That we are saved, and we are brought into the family of God where we were made to belong. And I want you to know Jesus wants to give you that gift this Christmas. And if that's you, I just want to invite you to pray with me right now. Father, Lord, I've sinned, and I have fought tooth and nail against all all of my vulnerabilities and weaknesses. God, forgive me. I receive the gift of Jesus. And Lord, I embrace the gift of my own powerlessness, knowing that you, Lord, are powerful, that in my weakness, you are still strong. 
And Lord, I trust you now to save me from death, to save me from hell, and to save the life that I live from here on out. Lord, I give myself to you in the name of Jesus. I pray that you would give your Holy Spirit to me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed with us, please fill out the connection card in our digital bulletin. We want to walk alongside you.